hello, and welcome to Spall Talk, the only podcast where two siblings talk about the life of Timothy Spall and career. The life and career of Timothy Spall. Eric isn't here to correct me on that one. He's, uh, I think he's currently driving somewhere. He said he said he had to see a man about a horse. Uh, but I've got with me a special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? That just means he's peeing. If he has to see a man about a horse, he's just peeing for the entire two hours we're recording this. <laughs> that was a good introduction, me. Uh, hello, I'm Marty Schneider. I am, uh... I'm a former Something Awful writer, and I'm currently the host of a podcast called Breaking Mayberry, where my co-host Dan and I go through the wild world of 60s television, specifically the Andy Griffith Show, to learn why it broke all of your grandparents' brains. So you can li- <laughs> you can listen to that. Uh, it's Breaking Mayberry on pretty much every podcatcher known to man. Uh, or check us out on breakmayberry.nope. Check us out on BreakingMayberry.com. Uh, on Twitter, we are at BreakMayberry. And on Twitter, I am at SchneidRemarks. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-D, Remarks. All right. And today we're talking about the Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare musical. <laughs> that is... I love putting those words together in order. Yeah, yeah, just a, just a great set of words to have. Uh, yeah, the, the Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare musical Loves Labor's Lost. Uh released in the year 2000 but uh martin for the benefit of the guests at home who uh may not know which parts of love labor's lost they kept in this adaptation would you like to give us a uh perhaps a minute long summary of the film i mean it's hard to do a minute long because okay uh, uh so love's labor's lost is a lesser known work of shakespeare's it's uh, it doesn't get performed as often uh but essentially what happens in this play is there's this king and he has three friends and this king has sworn uh, at a time of war that he and his friends are pretty much gonna fuck off and hang out in the library for the next for a couple of years and he makes them take a vow uh that they're going to spend most of their time studying they're not going to have any contact with women uh they're going to eat as little as possible sleep as little as possible and it's just like a, a mental challenge for them this of course it's it, it's the longest no nut november ever that's exactly what it is it's some mike cernovich shit uh and they're gonna like have gorilla mindsets by the end of this <laughs> this is challenged when william shakespeare is the regent's <laughs> mindset uh shakespeare is hawking those pills uh this is challenged when the princess of france played here by alicia silverstone who is the most miscast in a very 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 long list of miscast people uh the the princess of france shows up along with her three friends and they of course challenge this uh challenge they challenge this oath that the king and his friend have taken uh and they all kind of fall in love a little bit uh, while the girls are just messing with the dudes. And that's kind of ended abruptly because war breaks out. And you know what else ends abruptly? The movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. So t- t- Also, uh, you forgot the part where Nathan Lane and Timothy Spall show up, and their subplot kind of is never resolved. It really is not. Um, they have a subplot where they are... Uh, actually, Neil, can you... Explain to me what was going on in that subplot, because I did not follow it. Okay, so Costard, who is Nathan Lane, gets brought in uh, by Timothy Spall, who plays the fantastical Spaniard, Don Armando, and we'll get to him. <laughs> uh, he has been brought in for being horny in the park right. with a woman. Right, because the whole, the, whole, so... the whole city is just like, no women. 
So they've they've like smuggled this woman in whose entire performance is just cleavage. <laughs> and and the king decrees he'll be kept in a dungeon and he'll he'll fast. And this is immediately discarded when Don Armando breaks him out of prison so he can deliver a letter to the woman that he was caught being horny in the park with. Because Don Armando is also horny for the woman. And uh, Kenneth Branagh also gives Costard a letter for the woman in uh, the Queen of France's uh, right. entourage yeah. that he is horny for. And he mixes these letters up. Different letters are sent to different people. And kind of nothing comes of this, at least on the Don... At least on the Don's end, nothing comes of this. Uh, this is mainly used as the way that Kenneth Branagh being horny is revealed, so that he is, he, he was the last horny per, he was the last non-horny person, then it's revealed, oh, you're also horny, so let's, let's just break this vow. Yeah, yeah. We, we've all lost the contest. Yeah, they're, they're trying to go for like a real Seinfeld master of his domain kind of thing at the beginning, and that's just kind of tossed about halfway through. Like, well, we're, we all, we're all horny. We don't need to have this challenge anymore. And they, like, basically throw out the premise of the entire series. The entire and that's, like, 40 minutes in. Yeah. We get about 45 minutes into this 90-minute movie, and they go, eh, screw the premise. Screw the basic idea of this. Uh, I, I should clarify. So, the reason why Love's Labor is Lost is normally not performed very often, why it's such a lesser-known work, is really because... It's not finished. It's it, <laughs> it also sucks ass. That's that's part of it's part of why it's not performed is that it sucks ass, but it sucks ass because it's not complete. There's supposed to be a second part, Love's Labor's One, that comes after that's gonna end more like a Shakespearean comedy with everybody fucking. Um but this one kind of ends at the halfway mark, and either Shakespeare never got around to writing it, or all the copies were destroyed, or he wrote it but then turned it into a different play, probably Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, jury's kind of out on what happened with it. But the point is, this play doesn't end. It, it doesn't. It kind of ends with everybody going off, and they're expected to come back on a cliffhanger, and uh, instead they just uh, they just they canceled the series, and you never got resolved. Uh, <laughs> The king died on the way back to his own country. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and what Kenneth Branagh does here is he takes this half of a play and he cuts like two-thirds out of it to make room for George Gershwin musical numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so we are left with like one-sixth to one-eighth of a Shakespeare play followed by a bunch of singing and dancing from a group of people who are not exceptionally talented at either. Yeah, yeah, like... The IMDb trivia states that they were given a three-week course in singing and dancing, which... I don't... Like, three weeks is not a lot of time when it comes to singing and dancing. The hubris! Like... The hubris you, you of can, it all! You can learn a script in three weeks, but, like, someone who has never sung or danced before learning a, a film's worth of musical numbers... That that's a that's a hard squeeze. It's it's rough, man. Every part of it as, is as the bishop said to the actor actress, that's a hard squeeze. <laughs> uh yeah, so we should be left with I don't know if I'm more insulted on behalf of Shakespeare or Cole Porter, but like <laughs> this unholy combination and here's the thing, right? Like that's the thing that's just so out there that I don't know who the audience for it is except Kenneth Branagh. And <laughs> But on the other hand, like that's a thing, that's a thing that I would get into because it's just so out there. If it was pulled off adequately, which it is not here, 
Yeah, yeah. It it takes a weirdly broad approach to the comedy and a, uh, let's say, budgetarily restrained approach to the filmmaking. Budgetarily restrained is definitely uh, a delicate way of putting it. It is the fakest looking Shakespeare thing I've ever seen since Joss Whedon made a Shakespeare movie in his backyard. Like... <laughs> It literally. So before we get to I, I, before we get to the film as a whole, let, let's give our highlights and lowlights. Let's let's give a well before we say many bad things. Let's let's say a few good things. I will start off with my uh, my small wonder to sort sure. of make this an insult sandwich, blanket it in kind words. And for my small wonder, I'm going to say so. There's a, a part in this film where there is. A masquerade after after the king's entourage tears up their no nut November challenge. They decide we we are going to woo these women with a masquerade. We're going to we're going to send them love tokens and masks. We are ready to nut, <laughs> and and then we will we will dance with them until until we nut. And so they have these masks, and the women they they don't receive these masks with good humor. They 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 feel they feel mocked and so they decide to mock in turn they switch masks but still retain their color coded dresses which if the main thing that identifies you for the entirety of the movie is the loud day glow themed outfits you wear only changing the masks is not it's not that much of a way of fooling someone. Oh, it's especially like, good because uh, the men in their lapels wear flowers that match the color that is assigned to their beloved uh, in, like, true subtlety, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they they are color-coordinated for the entire film. That costume designer really kind of admirable. It, it's kind of admirable to uh, up to the point where it becomes irritating. But then they have this masquerade, and you ever hear the, you ever see the musical number "Hey Big Spender"? I, I forget which musical it's from, but it's the one with the chair, and it's very sultry. And this is basically ripping that off wholesale, sure, but with less sexy music and visually the the way this has gotten across the the whole. The, the sheer horniness of it all is what I would describe as a bargain basement version of the uh, Club Can Can musical number from Moulin Rouge. Lots of fast cutting, lots of Dutch angles, lots of red light. This is this is the horny part of the movie, and the sheer mileage they were able to get out of what seemed to be a very limited set of technical tools in terms of like here are the sets we've got, here are the lighting rigs we've got. Let's Let's try to make a meal out of this. Uh, they're doing it to... I found that admirable. They're doing it to Let's Face the Music and Dance, uh, Irving Berlin, but like a sexy version of it. And the thing is, I, I like that scene too, but in order for us to really explain why that scene is good, we have to explain why it does the opposite of everything else that is so bad in the rest of the movie. Because, like, th those frantic cuts that it does, that, like, aping Bosler in style... Uh, 
is also replicated in other parts of the film. It just cuts, 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 and it's nauseating. Uh, and, you know, the dancing is good here and serves a purpose. There's actually, like, a transition. We have, like, a narrator character kind of explain what's about to happen, and it transitions from the play into the musical, whereas everything before was just, like, talking in Shakespearean couplets. How doth note him, sir? Hey, big spender! Like... <laughs> Like just total uh. whiplash d- immediately halfway through a sentence they switch into a musical and this one like actually like eased you in uh and so yeah that's why this scene is good because the rest of it's so bad um right right and and the choreography is it's actually decent. kind of impressive compared to many of the other musical numbers where the I think in uh that's what they spent the in three the weeks one where on. they're all revealing their horny the 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 most impressive bit of uh of dance is I, I can't remember the the names of them but the one that isn't Matthew Lillard or the King where he sort of walks up onto a, a chair and sort of rides it down like that is the most impressive bit of dance mastery that that bit of keeping your balance on a falling chair right. And then in this one, you've got Kenneth Branagh crawling on the ground in a horny mask. And <laughs> even if it's not super impressive, it is, it's, it's admirable that he would, that, that he's on that ground in that mask. We, we, based- this feels like a good time to mention that Kenneth Branagh is 25 years older than everyone on this screen. Like, at the very <laughs> least. The first time you see him, he's hanging out with, like, 2000-era Matthew Lillard. Like, pre-Scooby-Doo, post-She's-All-That, I think we, we figured out. And he's just standing yeah. there like, yes, I'm the same age as these men. Yes, hello, I'm not 60 at all. This isn't weird. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a solid four years after his uh, version of Hamlet, in which he, a 40-year-old man, wrote himself a sex scene with Ophelia, played by... A 20-year-old woman, if that. Right. Uh, so, yeah, he's he's in the horny, writhing, like, uh, sexual energy orgy that they've got going on in this scene. And it's it's very weird. <laughs> yeah. It's... How does one do, fellow kids? <laughs> uh, my spall wonder, I think I'm gonna go with, uh, is Nathan Lane trying his damnedest to hold this movie together? Uh, as as best as he can. Because uh, Nathan Lane is pretty much the only person in this who feels like they were cast in a Nathan Lane-style role. Like, he's he's kind of the court jester, so he gets to do, like, a little bit of, like, a little bit of slapstick comedy, which honestly feels a little below Nathan Lane. But he, he's got these quick, snappy deliveries. Hey, I'm Nathan Lane. Hey. And uh, it's, it's so... And, and not only that, he, he does, like, the Senor Vences thing, where he's got his hand, like, doing a mouth... It's all right. It's all right. It's yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's it feels so weird and out of place. It feels like it came from a different movie, which by default would mean it came from a good movie. And I, I, I could see Nathan Lane showing up in like Hudsucker Proxy doing this shit. Yeah, yeah. He, there's something very Cohen to him as well in this. Uh, and so I, if also Nathan Lane does Shakespeare and Nathan Lane has been on Broadway and West and numerous times. He's kind of the only person there who feels like they know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the actor's name I was trying to remember earlier is uh, Adrian Lester, who yeah. plays, who plays Dumaine. 
We did not mention any of the names of the characters because they are very hard to keep straight. They don't matter. Yeah. There's Ferdinand, Barone, Longueville, and Dumaine. Uh, and by the midpoint of the movie, I had no idea. So I, I just thought, oh, Matthew Lillard, uh, the the director, the, the guy who looks like... Uh, you know, I, I don't know who that Alessandro Nivola guy looks like, the guy who played the king. He played Jesus in a sexy Jesus movie. I looked him up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, like, he, he, he looks like the guy... He looks like a guy whose main attribute is that he looks like other guys. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Like, like a Patrick Wilson. <laughs> like, you look at him and you say, oh, that looks like a guy I should recognize. Even if you're not thinking of, oh... That's Ocean Master. You're thinking, oh, that looks like like five other actors that I can't really pin down. Uh, just, he's just got a face. He sure has a face. <laughs> I should point out, it's also like one of Shakespeare's laziest bits here that our, our two main characters are just referred to as the king and the princess. The king has a name. Right. It's Ferdinand, but like no one refers to it as that. Um, you know, that's the definition of a chameleonic actor. <laughs> he blends into the background. Uh, so do we, are we going to do uh, the, the uh, spalling moments? There's so many of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go first, and you mentioned that there's a lot of cutting in this film, and that is a, a big part of my spalling moment, which is you know, sort of spread throughout the entire film. It's more of an spalling attribute. And that is uh, the sheer number of reaction shots. <laughs> like whenever a particularly wacky line or event happens, you'll get like, multiple cuts from like Kenneth Branagh or Matthew Lillard reacting in either shame, horror, or surprise. And it's like it's edited like a movie about an amazing dog. <laughs> no like I would I'm gonna disagree, and the reason for that is if this was a movie about an amazing dog, they would hold that cut just long enough for us to see how amazing the dog is. <laughs> like these like, I, I'm surprised that you were able to register looks of shame or shock or emotion from these cuts because they go by so quickly that I was only able to register, that's a human face. <laughs> My brain did not process what emotion the face was making before we were on to another face. It was like I was taking one of the, it's like I was taking one of those tests to see, like, if I was racially biased and they keep just showing me different people's face, like, what's your response? What's your response? What's your response? Do you associate this face with a weapon? Do you associate this face with a weapon? Just, like. <laughs> it, it's like the, it's like the parallax view. Oh, I, it, it was especially bad in the, uh, the synchronized swimming scene. Like, because this movie has a synchronized swimming scene, because they really want you to think about 1930s and 40s musicals. And the thing about, the thing about those is, like, on those, on those swimming scenes, they hold the camera still for a long time, because you want to see all of it. That's what makes it interesting. But it's just like, like, swimmer's butt, swimmer's butt, swimmer's butt, like... Uh, like, our director can't get enough of these girls in these, like, 1920s flappers onesies. And he just has to keep cutting. And, and they never, and I don't think they ever have, like, the, the, the w really wide Busby Berkeley shot. No. Where you actually see the entire, you know, design of these, of this synchronized, uh, choreography. It looks like it was just done after hours at the YMCA. Like, they just had one corner it's of the cut pool like a shark attack. for adult swim. If that zoomed out any more, there'd be like three kids in, with pool noodles going, what's going on? <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, 
you kind of expect like goofy sound effects to come with these reaction shots. <laughs> and it's all just Nathan Lane over in the corner just making those into his hands. Waka waka. And and Nathan Lane is the only character who actually gets one of those goofy sound effects when he makes like a a a, a squeezing motion and you hear a bike horn when he's trying to explain how he was horny in the park. Uh, all right, Maya Spalling moment. Uh, you know, I hate to pick on her because I do like her as an actress, but Alicia Silverstone, my God, she's delivering her lines like she's still playing Cher Horowitz from Clueless. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like Cher's school play. It looks, and honestly, it looks like it w- it was made at a Beverly Hills high school. So I, that's my headcanon now. This is just like Cher doing some like theater in her senior year to like improve herself. Cause she delivers every line like how doth note hair. Like she clearly, it seems like she's reading all of these lines for the first time. <laughs> and I feel so bad, but like everyone in this movie's pretty bad, but she's definitely the worst. Uh, so that's, that's mine. Uh, hey, Neil. Would you like to yeah. guess how many screens this movie was on when it was released in the U.S.? Um, I'm going to say less than 200. It's way less. Remove a zero from that, my dude. Wow. <laughs> it was on fewer than 20 screens when it was released in the U.S. <laughs> in 2000. It made about $300,000 off of its $13 million budget. And also, this movie cost $13 million. <laughs> As we talk about that, I want you to remember, $13 million. I realize that's not a lot of money in movie terms, but holy shit, this was $13 million? Uh, H-bomber guy measured response voice, $13 million! $13 million! Yeah. (laughs) I wonder, are are, are Irving Berlin songs in the public domain? How much of that was licensing? They cut out two-thirds of the screenplay and half of the budget for these musical numbers. And yeah, we should mention, yeah, these are all Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, George Gershwin kind of songs. Uh, I think I have the soundtrack up here. Uh, It starts off like George Gershwin's I'd Rather Charleston, uh, The Way You Look Tonight gets in here. Uh, Spall, Timothy Spall gets to do I Get a Kick Out of You. uh, And... In his weird like, Borat voice, like I, I, I was. It, it's such a weird choice that he makes to do this played-up Spanish voice. He, he feels like he's reading for Garfield three. It, it's like I, it's such a it's such an over-the-top bit of vocal delivery, and like he he milks every line like it's like it's a prize cow. And it, it just feels like it should be in, like, I mentioned earlier, like, a film about an exceptional dog. Like, this guy should be the villain who wants to steal the dog and make a coat out of it. It's weird. Like, for the first couple of lines, I just thought he was doing that, like, harm, how, kind of, like, weird uh, vocalizing of vowels uh, that he later kind of does in Enchanted. Uh, and I was like, all right, so it's kind of like a precursor to that. And then he does a monologue that is pretty much just grunts and spits in this, like, weird voice. Like, he, his jowls are moving like a pufferfish. 
Like, it sounds like he, like, grabbed onto each end of his streak and just talked. I'm now doing a Spanish accent. He, he sounds like if a, a political caricature of an Irish politician from 1913 could talk. <laughs> like, you expect him to be waving around a bag of money and a shillelagh labeled police force. Did we mention that it's 1939? Did we mention that this movie takes place in the offset of World War Two? Oh, World War One. Yeah, um, yeah. In in the, in that famous peaceful time in pre World War Two Spain. Right. Right. I, honestly, like, I feel like I'd be really mad if it was like pre World War Two and the king of my nation just fucked off to like jerk off with his friends for a year in a library. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and like, I. Did Spain even have a king at this point? Like, I'm pretty sure by then the Franco regime was already in power. Right, right. Uh, we should point out this is not a real country that they that this guy's the king of. He's like the king of Gilder or something. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I was sort of confused because, like, they mentioned that, you know, the fantastical Spaniard is, is a devoted subject of his. But I guess he's just a guy from out of town who really likes the king. Yeah, I thought he was like a diplomat or something. Yeah. <laughs> but None of this like, makes any sense. If the way that Timothy Spall talks is bizarre, the way he moves is even more so. He, he like slinks around and like the way he walks, he is... He, he, he looks like... The, the we see him in profile as he dances around a little bit, and you know, like that silhouette of uh, Hitchcock that started every episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Now, I don't want you to think about Alfred Hitchcock. I want you to think about that silhouette specifically dancing around, but on like with like two little breadsticks for legs. <laughs> That's what he looks like in profile. It, it it's like a. It, in Food Fight, that scene where, like, the robot guy walks around the supermarket and his walk cycle is just completely fucked up, that's the sort of energy that Timothy Spall is bringing to every bit of movement. You know you know those little, like, squeeze toys that you, like, squeeze them and the eyes and the ears pop out? Yeah, so flip one of those upside down so that the small end is ahead of it, and then just dance, wiggle that thing around, and you pretty much got Timothy Spall's dance moves in this. Oh. It's so weird. I, I, I need to point out that this movie bombed so hard that Kenneth Branagh had, like, three more Shakespeare deals with Warner Brothers, like, three more movies in the works, and they said, no, no, we're good. We're good, Ken. I, I can imagine why. <laughs> this was what his fourth like Shakespeare movie like, between it was like uh, Henry uh, Much Ado this and one other one I don't recall Hamlet Hamlet which we've already covered right. on the show and which uh, Eric and I were not big fans of yeah and that's the other thing right part of the part of the reason why this movie's bad is that Kenneth Branagh is just pulling from his friend like he probably could have gotten better actors for these roles but he was really really dedicated to just like his little repertoire theater uh, at that yeah point. like he in terms of casting he definitely shot his shot with Hamlet because there are so many people in that movie it is just a smorgasbord of actors. And, and compare this, which came right after, and it's depleted entirely. You know, uh, you know what 
uh, I'm looking at his uh, IMDb page right now. Like, he got Charlton Heston for a bit part in Hamlet, and, like, Alicia Silverstone is one of the starring players. Do you know what movie this? comes right before this uh, in IM- on Kenneth Branagh's IMDb? That would be Wiki Wild, Wiki 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 Wild Wild West. Jim West, Death Rider, <laughs> Rough Rider. No, you don't want none of, none of this. None of this. <laughs> In the stress, be out of this stress when she meets Jim West. Yeah, so he's coming right off that Wild Wild West success and hits us right with Love Labor's loss. <laughs> oh, dark dark time is, in the Brana household. He is trying to live his best life, and it, it's certainly trying. <laughs> Oh my god. Uh but yeah, the 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 spackle that they use to hold the structure together quite are these literally, newsreel segments. Like quite literally this large set swaths is of the plot. <laughs> <laughs> large swaths of the plot are sort of like strung together with long expository bits, sometimes even just using B-roll from the film itself. Right. Just like put in black and white with a Sky Captain filter over it. And yeah, so and that's done with uh, a newsreel, like a 1940s newsreel, like breaking news from the kingdom, which is clever <laughs> once. I was like, the, the first time they did it to open the movie, to set the stage, I was like, I'm on board. This is a neat and idea. Like, and then they do it in the, five more times. In the first one, it's actually got, like, these little funny asides. Like, like the, the narrator talking to the footage in sort of a, a snappy way, which I really liked. But that is not the case with, like, any of the later ones. They dispense with anything but sheer exposition. <laughs> For the later ones. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of part of the hard left turn that this movie makes in the last 20 to 25 minutes. Because, again, it's not finished. This is supposed to be act two. So, you know how most, like, three-act structures, they set you up, and uh, in the first act, we kind of introduce the problem, and then everything gets worse in the second act, and we have to actually do, like, a call to action and about midway through, and then the third act, it resolves it. So this just ends when things get worse. Like, <laughs> it's- and, like... In the shorter, in the sort of Shakespeare structure, where like the fourth act is like the the climactic bit, like the 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 trial of Shylock, and like the fifth act is like the epilogue and like finishing things up. A solid like half hour of the film is like that fifth act, like saying their goodbyes for this twelve year mourning, and that and then there's that no 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 my man like, not twelve year twelve month. It's Twelve months, I thought I it's said. A year. It's a single year, and I don't. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I, don't I got blame mixed up you. between twelve months and one year, and said twelve years. No, I don't blame you for being confused because I was also confused because Alicia Silverstone delivering Shakespearean dialogue did not explain it very clearly to me. <laughs> Twelve. She she says it like it's a prophecy, like when the twelve celestial bodies align after this time. And I'm just like, you will you will split open the tablet and the prophecy will be complete and you will rule the world? I, I It's very Petus weird. Petus will finally defeat Sin and yeah. win the Blitzball tournament? Xehanort will get all 12 pieces of himself back? I, that's, that's the, that, there you go, folks. That's my Kingdom Hearts reference for the day. <laughs> uh, but mentioning the performances, like we've mentioned like Nathan Lane as someone who... Is good. You know... Yeah, and Timothy Spall as someone who is bizarre. Kenneth Branagh is one of the only people in the cast who, like, commits to 
delivering Shakespeare in a sort of, like, conventional Shakespeare manner. And it, it's like he's holding up the entire rest of the cast. Like, every, just about every fancy monologue is delivered by Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> and, like, I guess I'd make that choice if my only other choices were, like, Matthew Lillard and two guys whose names I can't remember. Right. Because they, they're they most known for is a, a bit role in, like, The Day After Tomorrow. <laughs> It's it's weird because it's like everyone else is leaning into the like 1930s slapstick and Kenneth Branagh who I have to assume came up with this concept is the only one He literally directed it. He's the only one not buying into his own line of reasoning. He's still doing his like Royal Shakespeare Company bullshit and it's very clearly not that kind of movie and he doesn't seem to realize it. Yeah, yeah, like I I think even if you removed the songs and just left it as this sort of broad sex comedy with a, a vaguely 1930-ish flair, you could kind of make it work. But you would have to, you know, do some work in, like, getting better performances out of the cast. Like but... I said, it's not the worst idea for a movie. Like, it's not the... It's a weird idea, but I feel like you could make it work. I don't know who the audience is for it, but I feel like it could be pulled off. But this doesn't even try. Thirteen million dollars! <laughs> Thirteen million dollars! <laughs> the, the, the Shakespearean language and the, the Cole Porter songs just go together like polka dots and plaid. And, like, if they had tried doing, like, a Ten Things I Hate About You thing and sort of modernized the dialogue to fit the 1930s period, I think that could have worked much better. It would all it would all be of a piece sure, in terms of sure. the language. But Ten Things I Hate About You is based off of Taming of the Shrew, which I should point out is a complete play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I oh, and we should I, also <laughs> also Heath Ledger and Joseph Gordon-Levitt combined are better than the entire male cast of this film. Oh man! Except maybe Nathan Lane and. Arguably Timothy Spall. I don't know what Spall's doing in this. <laughs> also, I just want to say, Allison Janney rules, and she should have been in this. She she would have been really good in this. I, I'm not going to say that she should have been in this, but she should have been in a good version of this. <laughs> so what you're saying is, if Allison Janney was in a good thing, it would be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the nice thing about this is it got, it allowed me to talk on Twitter to Matt Zolersites, uh, who is a pretty well-known critic, uh, well-renowned critic, who is, like, one of, uh, Roger Ebert's contemporaries. And for some reason, he wanted to talk to me about this movie, because I was talking about it on Twitter. Uh, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was nice. I was like, cool, I'm talking to a guy I really respect about this piece of shit. Great. <laughs> Uh, and he said something like, uh, we were talking about just Brana in general and his, like, self-indulgence, and that's how he normally does this, but this is probably the most Kenneth Brana thing. And he said, if the, ex if the execution of his movies consistently matched the grandiosity of their conception, he would be considered one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And I turn around <laughs> to this guy who is making a lot more money and well more famous than like, Damn, dude, that's a lot of big words to say, I wish Kenneth Branagh was as good as Kenneth Branagh thinks he is. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're saying, dude. You're just using way fancier words. <laughs> oh, 
But yeah, like, the the broad humor of this, and, and the sort of unreachable bombast, like, reaching for something it can't grab, is is basically what Hamlet was in danger of becoming, except for the fact that it had the budget to hire all the actors it needed to make it even kind of work. And this is just all that bizarre bombast that, oh, let's change the sword fight ending of Hamlet to Hamlet literally riding a chandelier into Claudius, killing him. That that impulse brought to its worst logical conclusion... Uh, I still can't believe that that is a choice that he made. Let's have Hamlet kill Claudius with a chandelier. I mean, that rules. That rules, though. That unironically kicks ass. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the like last 20 minutes of this movie. Where, like, we're at the, we're right after the, uh, masquerade, and everybody's, like, sorted out all their silliness. Everyone's like, oh, you switched masks on me. Oh, ho, ho, I'm an idiot who can't tell some. Nathan Lane just saying there's no business like show business. Uh, yeah. Along with our, like, supporting cast, including Timothy Spall. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, hey, by the way, did you know it's World War II? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out World War II is happening. We should probably go get involved in that shit. And then... <laughs> And then the last 20 fucking minutes of this movie are everyone saying goodbye to each other in song. Uh, and it's so unearned, this, like, absolute tonal shift. Uh, it's still done in song, but now it's sad and melancholy songs. And it's like, this was just a fucking fun romp sex comedy 13 seconds ago. But we're going to spend the next 20 minutes on these goodbyes. And then they wrap up everything. Everything gets wrapped up in more newsreel footage as we see them, like, get shot in World War II. And we see, uh, at one point in time, I thought Timothy Spall was, like, being pushed into a concentration camp at some point. <laughs> what? Because no, you, you do. You see him, and he's, like, behind barbed wire, and someone's, like, pushing him onto a truck. I can't tell if he's, like, in uniform and he's going off to fight and he's going to the... I was very confused by what I was seeing. Holy shit! <laughs> but he, it's okay. He gets out of the concentration camp because he's there at the very end of what I assume is like uh, uh, VJ Day, and they've uh, you know won, and everyone's back together again because World War Two ended pretty well for everybody, I guess. Uh, and we <laughs> we see like footage of of, uh, of the king. Uh, and his friend, uh, Adrian, uh, just, like, shooting ships down. By the way, the king, I don't know, you probably wouldn't put the king of your country on the fucking plane to shoot some things. I mean, it's admirable, it's admirable that he he served, I guess, but I feel like you would probably have the king somewhere else. Uh, it's such a weird decision to, like, wrap everything up with, like, World War, fake World War II, like, news footage. And then... World War II ended and everyone got back together. The end. And it, I, I guess that's what happens when you have to write an ending to half a play. And it, and it does this like embarrassing thing where it was color and then it went to black and white for the newsreel footage. And then they get back together and slowly the color fades back into the picture because they're back again. And those are the credits. <laughs> the end. Uh. What pretentious drivel. <laughs> You really thought you were on something there, didn't you, Brana? I Fuck. It's so amazing that they have like this big show-stopping musical number. Now there's no business like show business. Everyone in the cast gets up, gets up and has a, a big dance together. It's the show-stopping musical number. God, I wish the it was show show-stopping. Does not stop. 
<laughs> oh, the show keeps going. I stepped on your joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the show needs to stop. You stop. You st- the show must not go on. This is the ending to the show. You 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 have had your setup and you have had your payoff. What little of the payoff there was. And I think I think it's like doubly bad because like that was the part where you and I both were like we're actually starting to kind of enjoy this. That masquerade scene uh up, you know, and the like sexy dance that comes before it. Those were parts of the movie that we were actually kind of into. I, I was actually starting to enjoy whatever the fuck this was for I guess that like three song period and then it does this on me yeah yeah it, it's like it's like watching a Midsummer Night's Dream on fast forward so everything is like compressed but you still get like the sort of outline of like oh here's a fun romp about mistaken identities but everyone has fun in the end and then you hit that musical number and then insert disc two <laughs> and you're like oh th- this felt done what <laughs> There, there's more of this. What, what are are we gonna are we gonna fight Genova? What, what's the second half of this gonna be? And it's just twenty minutes of goodbye, my love. I'll be sad when you're gone. We danced at three a.m., but you'll be gone for a year. Yeah, and then... it's it's set to uh, you can't take that away from me. I think. Uh. It's gonna lot. It's gonna take a lot to take me away from you. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing that a hundred men or more could ever do. <laughs> he's he's looking up at the plane, the like PlayStation One CGI'd plane. I would walk five hundred miles, and I would walk five hundred more just to be the man who walked a thousand <laughs> miles to fall down at your door. And then Matthew Lillard comes up and puts a hand on Kenneth Branagh's shoulder. Da 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 da. <laughs> da 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 da, and together they say da da dum da da dum da da dum da da dum da da as they walk away from the airfield like it's the end of Casablanca. I see. Now I want like a a, a jukebox musical of '90s one-hit wonders. <laughs> Just Kenneth Branagh bellowing, "I get knocked down, but I get up again. You'll never knock me down." <laughs> I drink a whiskey drink, I drink a vodka drink, I drink a lager drink, I drink a cider drink. And then it, it becomes it becomes like a montage, right? Because Nathan Lane like comes up from the stage, Groove is in the heart, Groove is in the heart. <laughs> now see, this just sounds delightful. Yeah, no, what we're creating... But I'm... <laughs> Oh, delightful. Uh-huh. Uh. <laughs> I we should probably talk about the the less exciting performers because not everyone is Nathan Lane or Timothy Spall or Kenneth Branagh or Alicia Silverstone's really poor choices. Like yeah, Matthew we, Lillard. We haven't talked about any of the other women. Yeah. There are five yeah. there are like four other women in this cast. One and, of which is Emily also, Mortimer. And, and there's a, a vicar and the headmistress who have a musical number. I don't know what and they nothing do. Else. I don't know what their point is in this. I don't know why they're characters. I they have one scene and it goes nowhere. It's a boring musical number as well. I I legitimately I watched this movie less than twelve hours ago. I legitimately forgot that. <laughs> 
But yeah, okay, which which actors do you want to talk about? Who do we want to talk about? I Matthew Lillard is the only one, for one, whose name I can remember. Sure. And second off, who who seemed like an interesting prospect going in, like, oh, how's Matthew Lillard gonna handle singing in Shakespearean comedy? And it turns out, uh, uh it's kind of boring. Like, it it's not the Matthew Lillard we know and love. He doesn't get the chance to really shine he doesn't get the chance to do like the funny voices he just he his singing voice is just this sort of weird falsetto as well it, it's yeah he's uh we mentioned this is also pre-scooby-doo uh and now i'm looking at uh matthew lillard's uh imdb and he man he's just been playing shaggy for ever he just does, yeah, like he just does Shaggy he, now. That's it. Like in all uh, Scooby Doo media, which there is a surprising amount of, he's just Shaggy now. Yeah, like he did so well in those movies that he just like took over for Casey Kasem. Like move over, it, it's my town now. Um, and so like he he he's been getting like those consistent Shaggy paychecks, which fair enough. Yeah, I mean, but he's this this is him. Like you're right, coming off of. Uh, he, he's he's completely unknown at this point. You may have seen him in Wing Commander, and she's all that. <laughs> like these, these are really his big breaks right now. And uh, I mean, I can't even make fun of him because he gives like he gives like a high schooler performance. Essentially, he gives like the performance uh, by somebody who's not equipped for to do Shakespeare with a director who isn't helping them. I can't even make fun of Matthew Lillard for this. I feel like feel like he's just there trying his best, and I can't fault him for that. Sorry, I, that does not make it, for good podcasting. I know it, it's like uh, like a triple threat is someone who can act, sing, and dance. Uh, this seems to be the opposite, where someone who did not really act, at least in this style sing or dance is expected to do all three he was triple threatened in this role and barely made barely barely reached that bar hey listen listen anyone can make a musical with people who are good at dancing and singing but only a real master like kenneth brana can make a musical with people who suck at all of it I, this, this is Kenneth Branagh's, uh, 15, what was it, uh, fifteen seventeen to Paris? <laughs> like, where Clint Eastwood, like, oh, let's get the actual people who were involved in this, you know, to play their roles, and, you know, like, they're, they're not trained actors, but let's put them in these roles. Right. This was like, oh, let's, let's get people who aren't, who have no experience in any of these three skills and give them three weeks to do it. So that's like a week for each of them. Like, you know, a week of singing, a week of dancing, a week of Shakespearean delivery. We got $13 million to spend, folks. Go, go, go. $13 million. Again, I realize that that's a small amount of money. And that, as we're talking through, I'm like, yeah, you probably couldn't hire actors very well on that budget. But man, I feel like if you gave me $13 million and told me to make a Shakespeare musical, I would go, this is some weird Brewster's Million shit, but okay. <laughs> and I could do it probably pretty decently. That's right. I'm throwing down the gauntlet and saying I could do this better than Kenneth Branagh if you give me $13 million. You can contact me at Schneid Remarks if any eccentric billionaire wants to keep me up on or take me up on this. Let's fucking do it. Now I'm just imagining Kenneth Branagh in like the second week of filming just panicking and asking his producers 
Is the hyperbolic time chamber from Dragon Ball Z a real thing? You're so rich you could probably buy one. First off, I love the idea that Kenneth Branagh knows Dragon Ball Z well enough to reference specific plot points in your head. Um, <laughs> second off, I'm imagining Kenneth Branagh name-searching his name, Googling himself, as you know he does every day, uh, finding this podcast like, oh, another hit on my Kenneth Branagh Google News alert. And then he listens to it. And I'm, I'm, three weeks from now, I'm going to get a letter from Kenneth Branagh saying, you try it, motherfucker. <laughs> Here's a check, $13 million, go! <laughs> Kenneth Brana go on ballin' out super. <laughs> Kenneth Brana's gonna throw down the fucking gauntlet on me. Woo star! <laughs> if Kenneth Brana tried to make a Dragon Ball movie, would it be better or worse than Dragon Ball Evolution? It would be, it would be Dragon Ball Z, but at some point in time, Piccolo and Goku stop to go like, Oh, Mr. Sandman... Bring me a dream. No, no, no. That I've ever seen. You're missing an opportunity there, Mr. Satan. Oh, Cyan. Bring me a dream. Mr. Cyan, right? Obviously. No, no, I'm talking about the character Mr. Satan. Oh, sure. A.K.A. Hercule. I gotta be honest, a lot of these Dragon Ball references are going right over my head, but... Uh, I haven't seen the series, so I'm just going by what I've heard on the internet, so... Oh, good. They're kind of going over my head as well. Can I Can I go ahead and, uh, I'll do another, like, weird plug for Breaking Mayberry here. Uh, Alright. One of our Patreon deals is that, like, you can make us watch things if you pay a certain amount of money. Uh, and so we, Dan and I were trying to find... A Dragon Ball Z movie the other day, specifically the like two hour two parter where they fight Hitler. There's a Dragon Ball Z what? where they fight Hitler. I cannot stress this enough. Uh, and we got really excited about it because I've never seen any Dragon Ball Z. Uh, so we were going to record this bonus episode. Turns out that 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 like event where they fight Hitler is no longer on any streaming services because they gave it a theatrical release two months ago in November to hype people up for the new Dragon Ball Z movie that came up in in December. Uh, and so like we had planned our entire evening around this, and what we wound up doing instead is watching Walker Texas Ranger. Uh, <laughs> And making that our bonus episode. Uh, and it appara- I, I think it falls under the same jurisdiction as what we do, because what we do is classic television, mostly the Andy Griffith show. And just like Andy Griffith, uh, Walker, Texas Ranger is also a show that ran on CBS for eight years about uh, unconventional lawmen. So, <laughs> so yeah. You know, uh, Chuck Norris, Goku, they're, they're the same guy. They're the same, and Andy Griffith, they're all the same person. <laughs> I, there, there's an episode where Chuck Norris learns to drive. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you listen to Breaking Mayberry, we might like give you that bonus content, and we will eventually do a Dragon Ball episode. So uh, yeah, get get your Andy Griffith on with us. BreakingMayberry.com. Back to this podcast. <laughs> All right. So it seems like we have we have milked this. I, uh, I got nothing this left. Prostate of a film for all it's worth. Prostate of yeah. So let, let's go to our Spall ratings. Uh, for our listeners, that's the film itself, Spall's performance, and Spall fashion all out of five. Oh, man, the Spall uh, fashion. Out of five Spalls. Uh, would you like to go first? Uh, which one are we doing first? Uh, we usually do film, then Spall, then Spall fashion. All right, but okay. You so, can mix it up if you'd like. So for the film, oh, God, uh, I'm going to give it like 0.5, like maybe, maybe. Oh, a, wow. Maybe like a one just for like original idea. I wish this was good. I wish I did. I wish it was. Uh, 
but it's it sucks. It sucks so hard. Uh, and as far as Spall's performance, man, I don't I don't know how to rate what he's doing here. <laughs> I, the choices that Timothy Spall is making in this movie are just so out there that I don't have a point of comparison for it to anything. So I can't give you a good or bad. Can I like? I'm, I, my, my, it's like a, a superposition between one and five. Yeah, my, my, my instinct is like, well, I guess I just got to give it like a 2.5, right? Just out of, uh, by default. But I want to give it like an N. Can I, can I give it like <laughs> the letter N out of five? Because <laughs> I can't, I can't give it anything on a rational scale. Um, so yeah. hey, A square root of negative one out of five. Exactly. Uh, that, uh, and Spall fashion. So, uh, Spall, so you know how Hugo Boss made the, uh, you know, out uniforms for, uh, the, the, for Nazi Germany, you know, little yeah. fact. So take that same concept and replace Hugo Boss with Waluigi. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the clothing that, uh, our fantastic Spaniard is wearing for half of this, including his musical number. I get no kick from Calcon. <laughs> <laughs> he does like five costume changes in that in that set. I, I do recommend that maybe you go and hunt down the YouTube clip of just that two minute song of Timothy's Ball singing "I Get a Kick Out of You" because it's so baffling. Uh, so yeah, like that and the Masquerade musical number, and maybe maybe there's no business like show business. Those are like the three decent musical numbers right right uh so for for spall's fat i mean i gotta give like a four out of five for that waluigi ass get up just for the mustache he's rocking we haven't talked about his weird like pencil w mustache um and at at one point at the very end we see that he has a child because there's like a little kid who has that (laughs) stupid mustache drawn on his face at the very end which is very funny (laughs) uh yeah like we we didn't mention how boring most of the other musical numbers are but we sort of glossed over it but like so many of them are just like some people vaguely rhythmically walking yeah i mean and like so some of the ones with like kenneth brada like there's some business with stairs and like there's there's some sort of like synchronization but a lot of it is it, it, it is very like high school production where like you, you have to you have to work around the fact that you've got three weeks to prepare, so you can't do anything super fancy with sets or choreography, except in like those three musical numbers. You've got you know the Timothy Spall one, which really goes all out and like having a bunch of different sets. Like he's in a plane at one point and he does a barrel roll and his attendant falls out, yeah. and like he, he's in his study with the cocaine and then he sneezes and all the cocaine flies in his lackey's face and like the. A bunch of little gags like that in different sets is like where a lot of the expense of that musical number goes. And then you've got the, the 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 masquerade one, which gets a lot of its mileage out of different cuts and different lighting bits. And then you've got no business like show business, which like it has the most people on stage at a time. And that's when you actually get that Busby Berkeley shot right. from above, right? Not in the synchronized swimming bit, and like that's the only one that really gets to like the amount of pageantry that you'd expect 
from a musical like this. I mean, I think you mentioned that we've kind of glossed over how boring the rest of these are. I think the fact that we've been sitting here for an hour desperately trying to come up with other topics to talk about and neither of us suggested let's talk about this musical number until just now, uh, I think that kind of speaks for itself. I think that kind of explains how bad these musical numbers are in that we just didn't think to talk about them and that yeah and that sucks because they are roughly 65 percent of the movie <laughs> this movie is more obviously shot on a set than shock treatment which is diegetically shot in a sound stage they are like the entire town is a sound stage in that movie <laughs> they are hang on a second let me go ahead and do some calculating here those those musical numbers are 8.45 million dollars <laughs> Oh. I, I did 13 times, like 65% of 13, if you were wondering. Yeah. Never. Eight and a have, half million dollars. Never have so many producers. Like, Martin Scorsese is attached to this movie yeah. in, like, a, a, a producer role. Like, his name is especially in the credits, like, a, a guy who's presenting this. Like, him, the wine scenes, never have so many spent so much and gotten so little. I, I do want to point out, it's just like a weird little nitpick, but yeah, Stanley Donen and Martin Scorsese are uh, put as producers here. And the movie starts off, it's blank, and you just see the words Stanley Donen and, and they stay on the screen for a little bit longer than it takes you to read those three words. And then they fade, and then Martin Scorsese present, and those words stay on the screen for about ten more seconds, and then those fade... And then we cut to the to the like intro, like it's a 1930s musical. I it, it, yeah it's yeah, very it's like... nitpicky, and but it's just it's just slightly off and slightly off putting, and I think that gives you a very very good sense of what you're about to experience. Yeah yeah, like I, I do want to mention like the title card is it, it's very nice. It's like a faux script uh, font on like a, a red velvet background. It's very nice. It's much better than the rest of the film that's leading into that's how you know you got a quality film ladies and gentlemen when uh when the two guys are trying to find something good to talk about and they go oh man that title card <laughs> it, it, it is much better than the rest of the movie and that is that is a sad sight yeah when i used now, to uh I, when i used to review movies for something awful if i was really just not into something i would start thinking about like Oh, that's an interesting hallway that they're walking down there. I'm going to give it a point for this hallway. Yeah, yeah there have been multiple points where I, I've specifically noted down a, a font in a film as like, oh, that's particularly interesting in this boring movie. Or on the other side, that font fucking looks ugly as hell. Because, like, an ugly font is its own reward. Oh my god, we haven't talked about the sky, the sky writing. Speaking of fonts... <laughs> When this how this movie fucking ends before they go to the WW2 footage, uh, they go like as our princess and her friends get on the plane like it's the end of Casablanca, and they're singing "You Can't Take That Away from Me." It turns out that this plane, which is a pretty big plane, was doing skywriting at night. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't stress this enough. Was doing was like made all these leaps and stuff, and it's such a shitty looking plane. This like PlayStation One era fucking plane. <laughs> And like, like it's so poorly green screen. You see like Emily Mortimer's head picking out of a window, and I'm like, why is this taking so long? Because they were writing a message, a Shakespeare <laughs> message in the fucking sky at night, like a goodbye message. I can't remember. It was like, you go this way, we go this way, you walk this way. Like it was so dumb. It, it's I like am... the message at the end of the Brother Solomon, but for for skywriting. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, alright, so, god damn. You, 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 $13 million! $13 million! But yeah, um, for, for small ratings, I can't give this film, like, a one, because there are so many worse movies we've covered. Like, we, we covered the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland movie, we covered Vanilla Sky, we covered Upside Down, we covered... Jack Boots on Whitehall, which I found interesting, but Eric and our guest hated. And all of those, I would say, are probably worse viewing experiences than this on the whole. But this is, I would say it's a two. It's like a two out of five, because like, there are bits that I, I found a lot of joy in, like Timothy Spall's accent was a, a thing of beauty and a joy forever, <laughs> to quote John Keats. And it is such a, a misbegotten thing. It's a thing that should not be, to quote James Hetfield. But oh yeah, yeah, you're, you're going it's all kind of place, beautiful. <laughs> it's kind of beautiful in its sheer. It's like it's like a puppy that's the runt of the litter, and and you're like, oh, you, I, I, I. The world is not going to be nice to you. Keith. The, the world will be so cruel to you. You you deserve some some joy in this life. So that's what I'm doing by giving this a two instead of a one. I'm I'm giving it some mercy in this life, which it did not receive at the box office. It did not receive critically, and it did not receive for most of this podcast. I guess, man. Like I, I I'm fully aware that I was being extra harsh on it when i gave it that super low rating uh and it's simply because like i i'll give points to a bad movie for being interesting like if if you try something interesting and you fail then i'm okay with this but this like tried something interesting and it failed on two levels by being bad and also by being mostly boring you took something that was so weird and you made it so dull and that's why i i had to be extra harsh on it fair enough but for Spall, I, I'm in the same position you are. His his performance is this superposition between just, there are so many aspects of it that are just horrendous, but at the same time, just the sheer bizarreness of it yeah. is fascinating. So I'll go with you. It's a square root of negative one out of five. It is. It is an irrational number. It, we had to pick irrational <laughs> numbers for this. Yeah. And I'm going to say five out of five for for the fashion oh, because yeah. oh yeah that 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 is a, a spicy number of a suit like that mustache <laughs> it, it it's a it's a statement life like some people wear statement watches <laughs> this this guy has a statement self uh okay and our recommendations martin would you like to go first okay so i'm gonna recommend um I'm going to recommend a musical that I actually like, uh, and you can get the soundtrack for, um, 
And it's based on a movie, uh, but this is already, like, original stuff. So I'm going to recommend the soundtrack, and if you can track it down and get tickets for it, if it's, like, touring in your area, uh, for the show, uh, Broadway show, Waitress, based on the movie starring Carrie Russell and Nathan Fillion, and, being very on brand for me, Andy Griffith, uh, Waitress tells the story of a diner waitress who is, like, hailed and well-known for making the best pies, uh, ever and she's uh that's kind of her claim to fame and she's encouraged to make those pies and to go into business for herself but she can't uh she's being held back by her relationship with uh an abusive husband uh she's also pregnant and doesn't want anyone to know this and she kind of has like a very uh, a 1930s style like slapstick comedy romance with her gynecologist that's um played by Nathan Fillion. Uh, and so it does also have kind of that, like, very old-school feel to it. Uh, the movie itself is not a musical. There is a musical written by Sarah Bareilles uh, that is was that is on stage and is currently touring right now. The uh, music for it is adorable and very fun and catchy. Uh, so that's what I'm going to recommend. Waitress, the musical, the show itself, and the soundtrack, which I'm pretty sure you can get on Spotify. All right. And do you have a second recommendation? Or is that oh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do a second musical. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you may know that I fucking love air traffic controllers. Um, I think they are national heroes, and they should always uh, get a great amount of credit. And when someone told me that there was a musical that was partially about air traffic, uh, I was pretty astounded by this. Uh, so that's a musical called Come From Away. It's a fairly new musical, uh, and it follows, it tells the story of uh, immediately after 9-11, there's this little town in uh, Newfoundland, a small town in Canada, that suddenly finds itself, its tiny little airport has 38 planes land in it, and the people of this town suddenly have to like take these travelers in who have been uh, very lost and confused. Uh, and the music itself is kind of like Celtic folky, uh, a little bit of rock music in there, so it's a very, like fun and interesting story uh that is told through this music and so that's come from away uh i know that there is a movie coming pretty soon uh but i haven't heard any developments on that but again you can also hear the uh songs itself on uh spotify i there there were like three or four just hard left turns in that description alone it's... like celtic folk musical 9-11 wow it's so very weird and also very touching. I I think you'll uh, you'll enjoy it. Well, that that that, that sounds like a, an interesting premise at the very least. Sure, sure. Uh, for my first recommendation, I'm going to recommend something that, much like this movie, is uh, very broad and kind of bizarre in a way that shouldn't work. But at least, but in in this case, and not in the case of the film we discussed actually does and that is the recent james wan film aquaman starring jason momoa it's okay <laughs> it it takes a turn that i had not seen from really any of these superhero films recently and just goes hard in on like classic action adventure stuff yeah like, th this could be a, a tintin comic but with sea monster fights uh, I, I when I was watching Aquaman, I thought of Conan the Barbarian numerous times. It's really going for that like 1980s fantasy action feel. Yeah, like the reason I saw it was like I heard it compared to like Flash Gordon, Jupiter Ascending, and like a, a, a lot of other like sort of broad, adventurous, kind of dumb but still very fun films. Right. 
and that is what I got out of it. It is it is a rip roaring good time. It's it's the it's a movie where Julie Andrews voices a sea monster that guards Excalibur. <laughs> I I. I... God, I want to say, like, much like this film that we're talking about, it also has terrible CGI. And it's like, that, that's it's such a bad thing to say because visually Aquaman does rule. It's just, it's beautiful. But there is just one, like, scene where they're running through a hallway that is some of the worst CGI I've ever seen. It looks like they're, looks like they basically pasted Jason Momoa into The Sims. And... <laughs> And in this wonderful <laughs> visual feast of a movie, just thinking about the fake CG people that he's running past bothered me so much. It's not nearly as bad as the plane in this. And it's such a stupid nitpick for what is, like, visually a very good film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it, it. it's like if a Marvel movie looked good and had good cinematography and design. What if a Marvel movie was in color? <laughs> Uh, and uh, my other recommendation, it it is also an adventure story, and that is Dragon Quest XI, uh, which is a JRPG that I've been playing recently, and I've been having a very fun time with. Uh, in particular, like it, it's got a very episodic structure, and one thing that I would like to highlight as like a, an example of the kind of tone that it can bring is there is this one sort of episodic side quest not really side quest, it's just a, an episode in the sort of line of events where you go to this, you, you you wash up on this island and you meet this mermaid. This mermaid is, you know, living on a soundbar and just pining for this man that she met years ago. He promised to marry her and she has been waiting faithfully for him and she's like, could you could you go remind him that he promised to marry me, please? <laughs> like, maybe he's forgotten? And so you go to the, you know, the island fishing town where that man is from, and you find out uh, that he died years ago because he was locked up by the citizens of the town for falling in love with a mermaid and refusing to go through with this arranged marriage. And so you meet this man's descendant, he tells you that, you know, his, you know, parent was found what like there was a storm that hit the island and they were like oh it's the guy that we locked up for wanting to marry a mermaid that caused all this let let's go get him and he in the storm he had found the child of the the the, the woman that he was supposed to marry but got locked up for not marrying and rescued him from the storm and so they they killed him right after that and so you you have to tell this mermaid that her her beloved has died and he you, you find this veil that he made for her that has just been in his his prison for so long and she she looks at the veil and puts it on and th there's a, a thing where like mermaids can't go on land because once they've set foot on land the next time they go into the water they will turn into foam and so with this veil on she she goes back into the water turns into foam and meets her husband in death and it's for for a video game based around uh, saving the world from a uh, 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 evil magic darkness man, that that that's such a, a touching sort of side story to tell, and and that's like what this game is capable of, and that that's just a small part of it, but there are so many other sort of small stories that are told that are beautiful. Well, that's it. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you well, make me go romance. first? Why didn't you go first? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you, 
because I wanted to bring everyone down leading into the plugs. You know what would be a real much easier way to uh, break the news to that mermaid that her true love has died? If you did it with a snappy newsreel. 1939! <laughs> This game also has a a story where you fight. This game also has a story where you like fight in an MMA tournament. So like, it's not all sad. All right. So you're gonna give me. So Martin, where can we find you online? Yeah. So I've already plugged it a couple of times in this episode, but yeah, you can listen to me and Dan Ludwig take on 1960s television uh, every week ish on Breaking Mayberry. That's a podcast that you can get wherever you get your podcast. BreakingMayberry.com. Twitter.com slash BreakMayberry, Facebook.com slash BreakingMayberry, and on the internet, on Twitter, I am at SchneidRemarks. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-D, Remarks. All right, and you can find our podcast at TalkSpall on Twitter. You can find us at SpallTalk.blogspot.com. You can find us on the Black Black Squirrel Radio Presents uh, Spotify feed. And uh, you can find all my other stuff at SpallTalk.blogspot.com. You can find links to my short story collection, my mixtapes, like that'll be in the show notes for this so go wild and as we sign off i'd just like to say spall is life the tongues of mocking wenches are as keen as is the razor's edge invisible cutting a smaller hair than may be seen by changing partners for the masquerade they'll undermine the gentleman's charade But while there's moonlight and music and love and romance Let's face the music and dance Before the fiddlers have wed Before they ask us to pay the bill Yeah.